This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, it seems like uh, the, after two months and thousands of needless deaths, Joe Biden has finally gotten over his pathological fear of provoking Vladimir Putin and has started really arming the Ukrainians. And it's come at the moment where I think there was a pivot in the Biden administration where they initially they didn't think that Ukraine could win and so they were arming them in, a, in what they thought was a losing battle. But now the Ukrainians won the Battle of Kiev, and they are now fighting in eastern Ukraine. And we are arming them to the teeth. We're providing them with anti-armor radar. We're providing them with drones. We're providing them with howitzers. Uh, remember when there was a time when we were only giving them old Soviet used gear, and now all of a sudden we're giving them some of our most advanced weapons. And President Biden has now requested Congress approve a $33 billion aid package for Ukraine. And so maybe we've finally gotten serious. Maybe we're actually trying to win. No Biden official would say the goal was victory. All of a sudden now, not only is our goal to help the Ukrainians win, this is a quote from Secretary Austin, we want to see Russia weakened to the degree that it can't do the kinds of things it has done in invading Ukraine. So we're actually now in a, in a goal of crushing the Russian military inside Ukraine. Things are getting better, Danny. Things are getting better. And the only shame here is that it took so long for this administration, but also I would say uh, particularly the Germans and others to realize that, in fact, Ukraine deserved defending. You know, we've all marveled at the incredible strength uh, and resilience of the Ukrainian people and of their defenses and of their political leadership. But I shudder to think without that, what would have happened? You and I were talking about this for the podcast, but I honestly believe that if Zelensky was not such a great public speaker, not such a, you know, get off his duff and speak to every single organization, every single parliament around the world that he could, without that, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing today. And without his spine of steel, by the way, uh, the fact that he, when they offered him, you know, to evacuate him from Kiev, he said, I need arms, ammo, not a lift. The fact that when Biden was pressuring him to cut a deal with Putin, he didn't want to do it. Uh, he wanted to fight to win. And I think we finally are starting to come around to his position, it sounds like. So what's very interesting is as people have gotten slightly less focused, laser-like focused on Ukraine, it's fallen a little bit from some of the front pages. The Russians have really largely given up on taking most of Ukraine. They've moved to try to take east of the country to take these two self-declared provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk. But what I think people are also missing here is how badly that's going for them as well. So I was reading a piece on Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, which has been covering this in great detail. And this is a piece off of a telegram channel run by a Russian military commander and former intelligence officer who played an instrumental role when the war first erupted in the Donbass in, in 2014. Here's a quote from him. 
in the best case scenario, the enemy will be, and that's the Ukrainians in this perspective, the enemy will slowly be pushed out of the Donbass with large losses for both sides, of course, across many weeks and possibly many months, he wrote. Overall, the enemy is defending competently, fiercely. It controls the situation and its troops. So That's the Russian assessment of the Ukrainians. That is this senior Russian officer's assessment of the Ukrainians. Before he just got killed by a Ukrainian <laughs> missile. <laughs> we shouldn't be laughing. We, we should, it's true. They keep doing it. They keep off of well, these and, and in fact, one of the yeah. things that you know we didn't ask our guest, which I was really interested in, is that their number one commander, their top commander, actually just went to one of the main axes of fighting that's going on out on the front lines. And... It is so highly unusual for the top guy to be on the front lines. This is why they keep losing all these generals. But I guess they have to have him there because they have no confidence in we their commanders. Have, we should have asked our guest, by the way, for those who haven't noticed, is, is General Jack Keane. We should have asked Jack about this because it's fascinating. Because I understand that the Russian military doesn't have the equivalent of non-commissioned officers. And so their officers are on front lines playing those roles. And that's why so many of them are getting killed. But that's a, that's an aside. Um the thing that I'm worried about, Danny, is that, again, the Biden administration's will, right? We know the Ukrainian will is there. The Biden administration's will. And what would be a victory for Vladimir Putin right now is anything short of having all of his troops driven out of Ukraine, right? If he's able to control some territory, if he's able to consolidate something that he could sell as a victory back home, if he's able to preserve some of his military and some territory and come to some peace deal. It's just, it's not permanent. He's just going to do it again. I mean, he did, he started in 2014 and then he paused and then he did it again in 2022. If we want this to stop, if we want to protect NATO from, from the Russian military, then they need to win. Then we need to win. And the, you know, who's figured this out? The British. Liz Truss, the British foreign secretary, our equivalent of our our secretary of state, has basically said our goal is to drive every Russian soldier out of every inch of Ukrainian territory. And Boris Johnson today said that we made a strategic mistake. We miscalculated at the start of this war because we thought the Russians were were stronger than they were and the Ukrainians were weaker than they really were. And because we'd forgotten what our values and our interests (laughs) were. Well, he didn't say that, but that's uh, that's a good addition. But, I mean, I don't know that the Biden administration has accepted that they miscalculated at the start of this, but you know, we, need to, we need to follow the British lead here and go for victory. And I agree with you wholeheartedly about that, but I also do worry about our staying power. I don't worry about the staying power of the Ukrainians. The only thing that I see domestically that I think will actually stiffen the resolve of the people in the White House who screwed this up at the outset is that polling has actually improved for the president because of what's going on. Well, you know, listen, these are guys who need From a From 37 to 41. That's I mean, not bad, on. Mark. That's, that's you know, We're talking 41? about 10%. That's a 10% improvement. For <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think that the president is in for so much domestic trouble. We've got such an unbelievable shellacking coming in the midterm this year, unless the Republicans do something to really screw up. Not that that's impossible, but that I think that he's actually going to look to this kind of thing to make him look good. So now what they're doing. They're who? They're the Democrats in the White House. So there's a $33 billion aid package, and they're linking it to $10 billion in COVID relief, which the the Republicans are not going to go along with. And the Republicans in the Senate have tied a vote on COVID relief to a vote on Title 42, which is the policy by which the only thing, the finger in the dike that is stopping us from having a completely open border on the southern border. And so by doing this, they are going to entangle 
Ukraine aid in the politics of the southern border, which is so stupid. You know, this is the president who said, I can unite Republicans and Democrats, right? Zelensky has done what he failed to do, right? He has united Republicans and Democrats. We are all behind Zelensky. We all want to help him win. We all want to give him the aid. And Joe Biden is going to jump in and screw it up. No, no, no. Not just Joe Biden. It is to our friends in Congress. It is to our friends in Congress on all sides of the aisle. Do a clean bill. You know, you may have forgotten what one looks like, but why don't you pretend that it's, you know, 1988 and do a freaking clean bill because they need the money. All the Republicans want to do a clean bill. It's the Democrats who are trying to hide. There should be just a clean bill. Right. There should be just a clean bill. But again, we can't take our eye off the ball, which is that we need to do everything that we can. Domestic policy, notwithstanding, domestic popularity, notwithstanding, we need to do everything we can to, to help the Ukrainians win this war. And that's one of the reasons we asked our guest, General Jack Keane, to join us once again. He is one of because our most popular. He is one of our most popular guests. Well, we He's just so awesome. We asked him. So, we asked him on for a reason because so this it, Americans understood what was going on when the when the battle was over Kiev, right? Ukrainians were were in their capital defending it from the Russians, and now the Russian forces have pulled out and the battle has moved to eastern Ukraine. Most people don't know much about eastern Ukraine, how it differs from what was going on there, and so we wanted to bring in somebody who is an expert in these things to explain. What the hell is going on in eastern Ukraine? Well, I'm going to repeat Jack's intro just because I'm not sure everybody is, remembers it as well as I do. General Keene is a retired four-star general. He's the chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and he is a Fox News senior strategic analyst. Yay. <laughs> Here's our interview. Jack, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, always good to be with the both of you, Mark and Danny. Well, it's great to have you back. So the last time we had you on was at the start of this war, and the general consensus in most of the world was that the Ukrainians didn't have much of a chance. If you looked at it on paper, the Russian military was so far, so far superior to the Ukrainians that it, they, their defeat was inevitable. And now they've they've won the Battle of Kiev. The Russians are now focusing on, on eastern Ukraine um, and it seems like for the, us non-military, non-expert observers that the Ukrainians have a chance to win this thing, do they? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's nothing short of remarkable. I recall how the, how we overrated the, uh, the Soviet Union's military. I mean, it was formidable in terms of size, scale, uh, weapons capabilities. And then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we got to exchange a lot with Russian generals. I happen to be an American general uh, commanding different organizations. But I really got to know these guys and what their capabilities were. We really overrated them, and so did our intelligence services. So here, here we find ourselves once again doing that. We bought into the Russian propaganda, I think, and how they were promoting the 10-year march to professionalize their military. They've come up short in just about every functional area on the battlefield, and we can do that if you want. But the Ukrainians were just as much a surprise. We knew that they had the will to fight, and we knew that even if the Russians had toppled them, as was expected, that they would resist an occupation and organize themselves uh, militarily against that occupation and would fight the Russians for as long as it took to get them off of Ukrainian land. That we were all committed to 
because we knew them. And I was in Ukraine twice prior to COVID and got to meet a number of their people who now have some responsibilities. And I, I was strong about that conviction. But what I didn't understand is the skill that they had in addition to the will and the flexibility of their organizations and the adaptability of it. I mean, these folks display a huge amount of imagination and creativity on the battlefield. And you compare that to the centralized leadership system of the Russians. And once they put an organization in motion, they don't change their plan while the Ukrainians are constantly changing based on what the Russians are doing and exposing their vulnerabilities and taking advantage of it. Nothing, nothing really short of remarkable. I mean, this is a very tough fight in front of the Ukrainians, to be sure. The odds probably still favor the Russians because they outgun and outmanned them. But the fact is, the Ukrainians really do, Mark and Danny, have a, an opportunity here. There's just no doubt about it. And uh, that's why the support for them, arms and ammunition that they specifically need, is so crucial. And their moral support from the world is also important. So, Jack, I want to get into the question of what more we can give them in a second. But first, I want to ask you a little bit about the new Russian war aims. You're the chairman of the board of the Institute for the Study of War. They're the folks who are doing the best analysis. They explained to us that the Russians have given up, for the most part, on Kiev. They've given up on larger Ukraine. They're focused almost entirely at this point on the Donbass, these self-declared republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. But even that's not going that well. Can you explain to people a little bit about how you see the dynamics in that conflict and why the Russians are not doing well? Yeah, certainly. Well, certainly uh, what has happened here is there was an expectation that they would do better for a couple of reasons. The Russians are, were expected to do better because they're going into the Donbass region, an area where they have been supporting the separatists in at least a third of that region, in Luhansk and Donetsk, the independently declared republics, since 2014. So they're very familiar uh, with the terrain, which is more open terrain, relatively flat, but not exclusively. There are towns and small villages, but it lends itself uh, to more conventional, high-end Russian mobile combined arms warfare and also lends itself to the advantage that the Russians have in terms of our artillery. And by that, I mean a lot of those positions in the Donbass region are fortified positions because you have to dig into the ground. You can't hide in building structures, which also provide concealment as well as protection. Well, fortified positions are easy to find on the battlefield. Satellites can find them, drones can find them, and artillery can pound them. So that is something we expected them to do, and they are doing just that. The other thing is, is that the smaller area where they can consolidate their forces in that smaller area, and the Russian supply lines are much closer to the fighting area versus what they were in the northern part. Comparably so, the Ukrainian supply lines are significantly greater, particularly with all the U.S. and NATO arms and ammunition that are coming from Poland, and they have to move across the entire swath of the country from the west uh, to the southeast to get to the to the fighting forces. Put all that together, and the Russians out, outnumber them, they likely have something of an advantage. But here has what has happened. 
the Russians, again, have a very complicated plan to go into the Donbass region. They are literally attacking on four axes, which stuns them. That And they're not mutually supporting axes. Remember, when they began the, the overall campaign to seize the entirety of Ukraine, they came in on four independent axes. One would have thought they have learned their lesson, but they have not. And the second thing uh, that has happened, once again, the Ukrainians are uh, showing us their adaptability. Not only are they defending in those static positions, but when the opportunity presents themselves, they roll out a mechanized brigade and go forward and engage the Russians and literally stall them in their place. And certainly they're not expecting anything like that to happen. The concern we have had, uh, Dana and Mark, is the preponderance of their artillery. It is what they're firing every single day against Ukrainian positions. That We believe that artillery can grind down that force, <laughs> gradually trick them, and also uh, make resupply very difficult in doing so. And that is why the Ukrainians have been asking for artillery, also the radars that are needed to find the Russian artillery, and, and it's easy to find the counter-battery radars they're receiving. If the Russians launch a round of ammunition, normally more than one, multiple tubes firing at the same time, that radar picks it up instantaneously as soon as it has elevation, and return fire can be done as quickly as the Ukrainians' artillery can react to that location. And that location would come to them digitally, and they can fire within seconds. So that is very powerful. We're giving them those radars, and we're giving them uh, tubes of artillery to deal with it. Artillery kills artillery. Second thing that kills artillery is air power. Ukrainian air power in the vicinity, not effective. Russian air defense systems are too close right there on the border and can nail them and have done so. Drones, however, effective. Flying at much lower altitudes, the drones can spot the artillery and sense that a shooter can be, again, in seconds, not minutes. Spot the artillery, fire on that artillery immediately, digitally send that location to the uh, artillery batteries, and other drones can kill the artillery. So those weapon systems were desperately trying to get to the Ukrainians as quickly as possible to deal with that. They're having the same command and control problems that they had in the north. They're having the same logistic problems that they have in the north. And because they moved in to this region, units that had fought in the north and were not made whole again in terms of refit and refurbishment, they have brought those units in, and not surprising, the ineptness and the lack of morale that they displayed in the north, they're displaying once again in the south. And that is why the Russians, while they made some incremental progress, there's no breakthrough of the Ukrainian lines at defensive uh, positions. And yes, so as a result of that, the Ukrainians have an opportunity here to absolutely stall the Russian advance as they did it in the north, and they likely would begin, as they have done sporadically, but likely more comprehensively, they would begin to counterattack, which would, if successful, begin to drive the Russians back and also just drive them across the border into Ukraine. That's optimistically speaking, but that is a scenario that could unfold. The opportunity is there. 
Is that a realistic possibility that the end of this war ends up with the Russian forces being driven out of all of Ukrainian territory? Is that an achievable objective? I think it's, uh, it's an aspirational goal as far as I'm concerned. I think getting the Russians out of the territory completely would be pretty tough to do. Stalling the Russians' advance is certainly very doable. And that would leave the Russians in control of some of the territory in southern Ukraine. And I think that is one of the reasons why the Russians are moving, we think, politically. And maybe these announcements would come on May 9th. And for that, our audience, that is the day the Russians have celebrated the defeat of Nazi Germany in World War II. And the thought would be that Putin would claim a victory over Mariupol despite the fact that there's uh, some soldiers and civilians held up in the steel plant, they would move the independent republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, which they haven't completely occupied, more so occupied in Luhansk than Donetsk, and move that to possibly annex those two, much as they did Crimea, and then also declare Kyrgyzstan, a city that they have occupied, but the Ukrainians are still fighting against them, but they are occupying and declare that as another independent republic and possibly do much the same in Transnistria, Moldova, where the Russians have had a presence of about 1,500 troops and Russian separatist militia in that area for some time. That is not as impactful certainly on Ukraine, but it helps to tell the Russian propaganda story about all their successes. The strategic objective, I think, remains for the Russians in the south, which is to control the south and the southern coastline and the cities and towns along that, and most importantly, the ports, which would deny the Ukrainians, particularly the opportunity to export all of their agricultural systems. As you know, they're one of the world's leading agricultural countries, and much of their economy is very dependent on their exports internationally. And the Russians would certainly uh, want that because it would devastate the Ukrainian economy. And also, I think over time, with that leverage, the Russians would get more concessions out of the Ukrainians. So a few weeks ago, Jack, President Zelensky was pretty angry with the West. He said that he asked, is NATO being run by Russia and why are the, all these weapons that we're asking for sitting in NATO warehouses gathering dust? And now he seems to be pretty happy with what he's getting. It sounds like President Biden has gotten over his inordinate fear of uh, provoking Vladimir Putin and is giving him much more robust weapons package. They've got a $33 billion package they're going to the Hill for. Are we finally giving Ukraine what it needs to succeed? Yeah, we are, uh, but we have to really sustain it because the consumption rates are pretty significant. Listen, the, the Biden administration clearly turned the page after a, a couple of weeks of not having a clear objective of what we were doing in Ukraine to begin with and not giving them the weapons they were they were asking for almost from the beginning. And as I talked to a very senior Pentagon official who told me that we had a push system, and we were pushing stuff to the Ukrainians that we thought they needed. Of course, in the beginning, it was to help them fight the Russians, knowing that the Russians would win, and then use some of the systems that we're giving them to organize a resistance and an insurgency against the Russians. That certainly was misplaced. 
as it was for most of us, but they didn't adjust quickly enough when the Ukrainians started to really slow down the Russian advance. And that was what Zelensky's frustration was about. And the other thing is they didn't commit to what they are now committing to, which is Zelensky's objective of what he's trying to achieve. And I believe, because I had a very high-level source, couldn't be higher, uh, who told me that the Biden administration is putting— this is in the first couple of weeks— Uh, After February 24th, the Biden administration is putting some serious pressure on Zelensky to cut a deal as soon as he possibly can. Well, the problem with that is that deal would be significantly at the advantage of the Russians and the expense of the Ukrainians. And my source told me, and this is coming from Zelensky, who spoke to him, that he was very frustrated by that privately, not talking about it publicly. And he was not trusting uh, where Biden was going. But the administration has turned the page. I mean, they are now talking about supporting Zelensky's desire for victory, to crush the Russian military inside of Ukraine, and attempting to give him all the weapons that he possibly needs. And they changed it from a push system to a pull system. And I was also told that the Secretary of Defense for the seven to 10 days leading up to the last meeting when they, both of them went to see Zelensky in Kyiv, they were personally working through the Ukraine's list with their counterparts. And that certainly helped to accelerate the scale of that list and, and also uh, the deployment of that list. The United States does something that nobody in the world can do. We can move logistics and military capability at scale any place in the world and do it rapidly. There is no other military that has ever been able to achieve that end to the degree that the United States military can, and we're doing that now. But the other thing that has to happen, and I was so encouraged by the meeting that the Secretary of Defense and the chairman had with the 40 nations at Ramstein Air Base, first of all, I was surprised that 40 showed up. And secondly, 14 of them are not Europeans. And certainly the, the gist of that meeting was to encourage them, possibly coerce them, or maybe even be a better term for some of them, into giving all they can and be willing to accept some risk into giving what they can, particularly uh, in the NATO nations. I maintain the view that if you can crush the Russian army in Ukraine, what better deterrence is there than that in terms of protecting NATO from some near-term advance by the Russian military on a NATO nation, which obviously Putin has stated is one of his objectives. That is as good a deterrence as we possibly could have in putting that off, certainly for a number of years. So, Jack, we've been talking about how great the Ukrainians are doing. We've been talking about the fact that the United States and the Biden administration suck less than they did before. We've been talking about the fact that our European allies are doing better. Let's talk a little bit about Vladimir. There are two things that I know Mark and I both want to ask you about. The one is something that is going to cause people to turn away for a moment, but I think is hugely important, and that is the issue of Moldova and Transnistria. Again, you you know, for the vast mass of us, you sort of say those words and everybody's like, oh, my God, yada, yada, yada. But if you look at a map, you can see why it is that Vladimir Putin may decide, even at this late date, to expand the war. What do you think? And can you help explain to people why this is important? 
Yeah, well, Moldova's geographic location certainly is part of the story here. It's right there on Ukraine's southwestern border. And Transnistria is a sort of a breakaway republic that has a history of Russian allegiance. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, the people in that area maintained those ties with Russia. Russia certainly exploited those ties. This is an easy win, frankly, uh, for Putin. It wouldn't take much of anything for him to do this. Certainly, he doesn't want to distract from what he's trying to achieve, which has the world's attention inside of Ukraine with his military forces. But Moldova has uh, a very small and even more significant weak military. False flag operations they're very good at. They, they activate some of that in Transnistria indicating that the Russian-speaking people there were being attacked, may need some help. And, and this is an old story and an old playbook that we saw play out in Crimea and eastern Ukraine and also just recently at the beginning of this war. So, yes, Russia could take Moldova easily, and that gives him another victory, certainly, and in his expansion that he desires in, in recreating not the former Soviet Union but the Russian Empire— He's got issues with the Soviet Union in, in terms of uh, he, how he believes those leaders participated in the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union. So you're absolutely right. I mean, Ukrainians not paying too much attention to it for all the obvious reasons. But I think it is on Putin's agenda. I cannot imagine it not being. It's just a question of when. Well, that's why it's so important for them to prevail in eastern Ukraine. What a lot of Americans really are worried about are this nuclear saber rattling we're hearing from the Russians and the danger that Putin might deploy a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. What do you think the odds are that he might do that if he's losing? And under what circumstances could that happen and what would that mean in terms of our engagement in Ukraine? Yeah, sure. Those are great questions and people have to put a lot of thought into that. But I'd just like to deal with two points there. One is They've also done some saber rattling about strategic nuclear weapons, which is just off the charts irresponsible and something you know we're not used to hearing since the inception of the Soviet Union and the United States having these weapons to that degree and that degree of irresponsibility. But I mean, so our audience understands, the United States has got an effective strategic deterrence when it comes to strategic weapons. And in our triad that consists of submarine-launched ballistic missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles that are in silos out west and are ready to go, and bombers that can take uh, uh, nuclear bombs and, and drop them. Those are not ready to go. They're not on alert, but they can be brought up to alert status based on the conflict. Uh, despite some of the Russians' advances in nuclear weapon modernization and our systems have atrophied, our strategic nuclear deterrence is effective and effective in the sense that it's mutual destruction, as it has always been. Russia attempts would, would destroy the United States and, and vice versa, Russia, and they would obviously take on Europe. And the, the British and the French also are armed with nuclear weapons. I think that is absolutely pure saber-rattling for the obvious reasons that Putin would lose his people and his regime over such an event. The attack on the nuclear weapon, however, while I think they're doing it for similar reasons, to get the United States and NATO to stop their full-throated support of the Ukrainians, because it's so obvious that it is making a difference, that the unity that the Europeans were able to achieve 
not only surprised some of us, but it surprised Putin, who uh, works pretty closely with them, particularly the Germans, not only in just in armament to the Ukraines, but also in terms of the sanctions and how they're beginning to unfold and get tougher. And even this week, the EU is talking about an embargo of oil and gas, uh, something that at the outset was not even on the table for discussion. That is what he wants to thwart. And he's, he's brandishing tactical nuclear weapons. We have to take it seriously. We don't really know what's in Mr. Putin's mind, and we don't know what's contaminating that mind, if there is anything else. Uh, most people, when looking at Putin in the past, knew he was ruthless, knew he was brutal. Chechnya, Syria, Aleppo, Idlib province, we have plenty of evidence how ruthless and brutal he is how much of a chess player he is in trying to uh, deal with people who believe are weak. But we've always subscribed to him a certain degree of rationality. And this seems to be something that is clearly at high risk. And I, I believe the way we deal with this is one soberly look at, look at this for what it is, that it could happen, and face that reality. And we should not let Putin used this to provoke fear or paralysis in the leadership of the United States or in the, in the leadership of NATO. And this would take some shoring up of NATO leaders by the United States leadership, in my mind, if it's not going on already. And that is, is that we have to be willing to confront it. I think we should make strong public statements. I don't believe we walk up the nuclear escalation ladder, but I do think we make certain that Mr. Putin knows publicly that there will be severe consequences to that event and that it would lead that he, by doing that, is by definition expanding the war. What is that action? I mean, what, what do we do if he were to use a tactical uke in Ukraine? What would that mean? What would we do in response or what should we do and what should we tell Putin we would do? Well, in my mind, the way to deal with that issue is recognize that he just changed the event. I'm not suggesting that we have to respond with a, a tactical nuke ourselves, but I would tell Mr. Putin in no uncertain terms that if you use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, you are now at war with the United States, and we're going to crush your army inside of Ukraine, and at risk will be some of your other assets your Black Sea maritime force and your Mediterranean force to include your three bases in Syria. All of that will be at risk. And you, Mr. Putin, are doing this because you are expanding the war by using the first tactical nuclear weapon in the history of mankind, and we're not going to stand for it. We can't speak for NATO. We don't know how NATO would react to that. So I'm not suggesting we tell them you're going to be dealing with uh, all of NATO because I'm not convinced that NATO, all NATO countries would agree to respond. And they have to have unanimity to be able to do that. But I would speak to the United States and make it unequivocally clear to him what he's facing. I don't know, to be frank about it, whether the Biden administration has the stomach for that. And, and you look at the signals right from the beginning. I told you that I had in full confidence the fact that Biden was trying to push Zelensky to make a deal early on. That's number one. 
And that's where I think Sullivan, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor is and where Blinken is. Biden started waving around World War III, which is, I don't believe is an appropriate statement uh, to make. But nonetheless, uh, he was making it because that conjures up nuclear warfare. He said it again today, Jack. Yeah. He's still saying it. Yeah. He said it today at the uh, drone factory that he was visiting. Yeah, he's playing into uh, Putin's hand in my mind. But I don't know where the administration is on this. I have no idea what the conversations were in the NATO meetings when they were dealing with this. I don't know if they had private conversations with Mr. Putin on something like this or if he doesn't want to talk to us, send him a cable, classified cable on it or a letter. The other thing, the one thing we do know is reported in the media that the National Security Council under the leadership of Jake Sullivan has put together this task force TIGER, uh, which is a whole of government task force to deal with what would be the United States response and a suggested response from NATO if Russia introduced WMD, either chemical weapons or a tactical nuclear weapon inside of Ukraine. So obviously it's got the attention of the administration. They're working through a, a, a number of options in, in how to de- deal with that. But I, I don't like, uh, I, I don't think their public rhetoric on this is as strong as, as it should be. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I was going to interrupt you and say that's why I would support a President Jack Keane, because I don't think a President Joe Biden would actually say the things that need to be said, because deterrence is no longer a big part of our strategic toolkit. Let me ask you an exit question, Jack, and it's it's one of those obnoxious sort of cable TV-like questions, but I feel irresponsible. Not, not, and you know what those are. <laughs> but you're one of those obnoxious cable TV type of people, Danny. <laughs> I'm a network TV person, Mark. And uh, But look, you're talking to everybody. You talk to folks at the, at the Pentagon and, and elsewhere. I don't want to dismiss the seriousness of what Vladimir Putin says or try to explain it away, but are people t- making conclusions about his health? Because I think that will impact his decision-making on these sort of apocalyptic decisions do you hear anything that isn't anything more than speculation in the Daily Mail? I don't have any inside information on it. I would tell you if I had and I couldn't talk about it, I don't. My sense is we may be making too much of it. I mean, when I look at Putin, 22 years in power, number one objective, like everybody who's an authoritarian dictator, is to stay in power. He's determined to do that. He, his popularity rating was in the low 60s, uh, which for him is significant. American politician would love to have that. But it rose into the mid-80s as a result of this campaign that's going on. And it's still high because the Russian people are buying into the false narrative that this is a limited military operation to put down the Nazi genocide that the Ukrainians are committing against Russian-speaking people. Um, I believe that I part with ISW a little bit here, that I think Putin in the long run has never given up, is not giving up the political objective to topple the government in Ukraine. Not necessary to occupy that whole country, but to force that government out of power and selected occupation. I don't think he's given that up, although militarily it's not achievable for the time being. I think he's found and determined to stay in power, to accomplish that objective. And I've given up on on discounting Mr. Putin 
Uh, I think as many of our presidents have done, going all the way back to George Bush, you know, after the famous 2007 Munich conference when Putin came in there, you know, blasting NATO expansion and impact on Russian security and stability, et cetera, we, we had a tendency to discount him. So I'm not doing that. I, I believe that Bill wants to attain his objectives with the former Soviet republics, which are now part of NATO. I think we have to be crystal clear about dealing with Mr. Putin and his extraordinary ambitions and his aggressions and some kind of stalemated ceasefire with the, with the Ukrainians in the south where he's occupying territory and we just sort of freeze everything in place like we did in 2014. Putin looks at that as nothing more than a pause. And that's all it will be for him. And at some point he will mount up again his aggression inside of Ukraine and certainly outside of it. And in the meantime, he will certainly likely take Moldova. That's why we got to defeat him. That's why uh, fighting for a stalemate isn't the answer. There is no substitute for victory. Amen. No, I totally agree with you. We, we've got to crush this Russian army inside of Ukraine. It's just no, That is the objective. Well, on that note, I know you'll be back, Jack, and I hope that it will be for all of us to celebrate the Ukrainian victory over Putin and his followers in Russia. But thank you so much for sharing your insight with us yet again. <laughs> We're just going to have to put you on the masthead. <laughs> Great talking to you guys. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thank Take you. Care. Thanks thank a you. ton. Take care. Real clarity on what what our declaratory policy should be when it comes to tactical nukes. This is, I think he's absolutely right that the Russians are not going to use a nuclear, strategic nuclear weapon against us. And, you know, we've played this, we've been to this rodeo before. For providing arms to the Mujahideen in the Soviet Union when the Russians were, when the Soviet Union was a nuclear power and they, they saber rattled their nuclear weapons at us and we, and Ronald Reagan said, yeah, whatever. Um, you know, and we, and we drove them out of, uh, of Afghanistan. Uh, the same can happen today in Ukraine. Tactical nuclear weapons are a different matter. I'm not quite as as certain that they would not use a, a nuclear weapon within Ukraine uh, to try if Putin feels that he is going to be absolutely humiliated. Uh, what do you think? Well, you actually shared with me, uh, I think over the weekend, a really good tweet thread, a uh, Twitter thread about the difference between tactical nuclear weapons and, and strategic nuclear weapons. I think the, that the way we've started to talk about them is strategic nuclear weapons are sort of big, big <laughs> and tactical weapons. nuclear weapons are they're small yeah, nuclear you know, weapons. <laughs> that, they're both nuclear weapons. If anybody wants it, just email us and we'll share it with you as well. We should actually ask him on the podcast. It'd be kind of interesting. Yeah, we should actually. He's a really interesting conversation. It's but how you use them. It's how you use them. But the one thing I think that is absolutely clear is that there is actually no tactical or strategic use for nuclear weapons in this war. There's no advantage to be gained by Putin in doing so. It's just shock and, and horror. And so all the more reason that we need to make very clear that any use of nuclear weapons, whether tactical or strategic, is utterly and completely unacceptable to us. And I want to I want to put a tiny footnote in here that people forget, which is that when you use a, a nuclear device, or let's even set aside a nuclear weapon, let's say you have an accident at a nuclear plant. Guess what? You know, there's not some big giant cone you lower over it that keeps it from going anywhere. 
the winds. That's sort of what they did in Chernobyl, isn't it? Only, only long afterwards. Yes, but only long afterwards they did that in Fukushima as well. But you can't do it immediately, and the wind takes that radioactivity, and it will disperse it over Eastern Europe, over Western Europe, depending on what's happening in the weather at that point. So the notion that somehow he can do this... be contained to Ukraine. Exactly, and that it's just... It would be an attack on NATO. Exactly. So it's important for people to make it clear, no matter what's going on in Putin's brain, and I think Jack has a very sober assessment about that, no matter what is going on in Putin's brain, he needs to understand that this would be an intolerable escalation. Do I have a sense of whether he's going to use them or not? I really, I don't. And I don't think I've seen anybody who has one. Well, the president going around constantly publicly worrying about World War III isn't helpful. (laughs) I mean, we need to be deterring him from doing so. And I think Jack's formula... And not deterring ourselves. not deterring ourselves, exactly. (laughs) I think Jack's formula of letting Putin know that if you do this, you're basically involving America in the war and that you, there will be consequences to you, to you that will we'll sink your Black Sea fleet. We will deliver a devastating blow to your military capabilities from which you will not recover. I, th- I think that we need, we need declaratory policy. Oh, and we had, we had one during the Cold War, uh, and it was a Cold War for a reason. We need one now in order to ensure that he does not seek to widen this conflict, misunderstanding what the consequences will be. And, and you know, even though that sounds like a, a benign word, so often wars happen. A miscalculation. Because there is a miscalculation. I don't think that Hitler believed for a moment that anyone would honor their commitment to the Polish government that had been made prior to the outset of World War II. I think he thought he would be able to take Poland and divide it up, just like he took the Sudetenland, just like he retook the Rhineland. And I think he was genuinely surprised when England and France declared war. I think Putin is as delusional as that, and we need to make it clear to him what the consequences will be. Yeah. I mean, when someone is delusional, you need to be very simple and very clear about what, you know, and not, and not have strategic ambiguity. Strategic ambiguity plays into their delusions. So I think Jack has laid out a really good framework, and I hope the Biden administration is listening to the podcast because that's exactly uh, what we ought to be saying. I hope you're listening, Tony, <laughs> Tony Jake. Jake. <laughs> Everybody, thank you for listening. No matter what, uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Please, even if your name isn't Tony or Jay, <laughs> please, <laughs> please subscribe. Please rate the podcast. Please, uh, please subscribe to our Substack, and don't hesitate to reach out with any comments or concerns. Take care, and tell Danny what you think of her opinions. <laughs> Mark, bye everyone. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at ai or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.